0: Welcome to CLASS, an official podcast of the National Political Education Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, discussing the organization's political education curriculum and more. My name is Elton L. We're going to be discussing the section Bourgeois and Proletarians from the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this episode of the DSA National Political Education Podcast. My name is Daphna Tier, and I'll be your host. This series is accompanying our curriculum packet on the question of what is capitalism. You can find our curriculum on our website, education.dsausa.org, under the Resources tab. We're joined today by sociologist Sanjeev Gupta and economics professor David Kotz, who both teach at UMass Amherst. In this episode, we'll focus on classes and class struggle under capitalism. If you're following along with the readings of the curriculum, this episode is based on an excerpt from the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, a chapter called Bourgeois and Proletarians, which just means the boss class and us, the working class. They wrote the Manifesto in 1848 at a time when revolution was in the air. That year, there were several revolutions in Europe that challenged and even toppled monarchy. They're making the case that workers can overthrow capitalism. David, Marx and Engels write that history is the history of class struggle. What does that mean? Is class struggle going on uh, all the time? Is it going on right now? And- Maybe you can give us also some examples of class struggle today.
1: I referred in the first episode to very early human history, or usually called prehistory, before there were classes in society when we lived in uh, hunter-gatherer bands, relatively equal cooperative sharing relations. But society has since moved through a series of class-based economic formations, starting with a slave system, been a feudal system and today capitalism. And in each of these class-based systems, there has been class struggle built into the structure between those who produce and those who own the producers or the enterprises or the land and take part of what the producers produce. There were slave rebellions in ancient slave systems and modern slave systems. There were peasant uprisings in feudalism. Uh, Capitalism from the beginning has seen struggles between workers and capitalists. It's rooted in the origin of profit. Capitalist profit comes from being able to keep the biggest cost of production, that of labor, low enough so that they can get a margin, a profit margin. And that means a constant drive to push down wages on the part of capitalists, and make workers work harder, whereas workers want a decent wage and they want working conditions that won't exhaust them, uh, leave them exhausted and uh, cause their powers to decline over time and threaten their health. So this is the root of the class struggle that takes place in capitalism. Uh, Marx and Engels refer to the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Well, those are French words for capitalists and workers. French terms have a lot of prestige among intellectuals and academics, but the uh, more commonplace words serve just as well uh, today, especially. And class struggle or class conflict occurs on many levels. It's not just over economic issues, also in the realm of politics and even in the realm of ideas. Uh, You usually think of, when you think of class struggle, you think of of workers going on strike. And that has always happened, uh, at least once capitalism had developed to a certain point. And in recent times in the US, there have been factory workers strikes, Kellogg workers went on a long strike, other groups of uh, factory workers, but class struggle is not limited to factory workers. Fast food workers have been going on strike, have been trying to organize unions, high tech workers, have been withholding their labor, trying to organize unions. Teachers have engaged in well-publicized strikes. Many different groups of workers have engaged in economic action. And it includes not just strikes, but union organizing campaigns, boycotts, slowdowns, other methods. But class struggle is not just in the economic side of society. It takes place in the political realm. Many of the political struggles in our country today are really class struggles, fights over labor rights uh, that are embodied in law, battles in which the representatives of big business want to cut social programs, which provide unemployment compensation and other benefits for workers, while labor unions and other workers' organizations try to expand and make them more generous. Housing programs, public housing programs, benefit working people. And the interests of capitalists are always there trying to limit housing programs. Tax policy, who will pay taxes to support the public sector? Those who can most afford it or those who can least afford it. Even antitrust policy intended to regulate or reduce monopoly power affects workers. It's not just consumers who are harmed by concentrations of economic power in an industry, but workers who find fewer prospective employers for their specialty also are at a disadvantage. Finally, there is a hidden class struggle in the realm of ideas. You often hear the term neoliberalism. That refers to a set of ideas and policies and practices that are aimed at justifying and providing maximum freedom for property owners, claiming that that will benefit everyone, that limited government regulation of business will get the government off our backs and and be good for everyone. This is class struggle in the realm of ideas. And unfortunately, in recent decades, the capitalists have been pretty successful in uh, imposing ideas that are unfavorable for working people, a belief that government intervention in the economy is simply bad and that if you just leave it to the genius of private business, all will be well. So it's important that for working peoples to advance their conditions, to be ready to fight on all three fronts.
0: Did you have any thoughts on that, Sanjeev?
2: What I love about this first sentence is that it's a theory of history in one sentence. So not only are they describing history as, you know, one class struggle after another, they're actually saying that this is, in fact, how history moves forward is through class struggle. And, you know, then they go on to say that you can have struggles between, you know, serfs and lords and slaves and slave owners and so on. And that is a historical constant, the struggle between groups of people who are trying to do their thing and, you know, live their lives and other people who are monopolizing power and resources in in some way. And what's unique about capitalism is, I mean, this is their claim, is that it's it's an advance because it's a great simplification of this class struggle into the two camps that David described, you know, the bosses and workers, essentially. So, yeah, it's a fabulous first sentence. Um, It's just something to think about that this is actually a very compact statement of how to understand history as more than a succession of events.
1: And I might add that successful class struggle by workers has at times led to making capitalism a little bit better for working people. But in the long run, it is hoped that it is class struggle that will enable us to move beyond capitalism and to bring about a future socialist society which, while it will not be perfect, no society ever is, there will be no exploitation and there will be no classes. It will be possible to have a cooperative society instead of one based on trying to rise by driving others down.
0: Right. And now it's actually necessary because what you were saying earlier is that this tension between capitalists and workers is constant. It's a constant feature in capitalism. So, so long as that tension exists, we're always going to have to be fighting for the most basic of our rights. But the other weird part about this chapter in the manifesto is that Marx and Engels are arguing that capitalism is progress. And it's like, well, why do they say that? I mean, capitalism, everything we've been describing in the last couple of episodes is horrible. And they're writing at a time when child labor is rampant and we're talking at a time when children are victims of incredible violence. That doesn't seem so great. <laughs> so what what do they mean, Sanjeev? In what way is this progress? And would you say that that's still true today? If they were writing the manifesto today, would they still think of this as progress?
2: I'll say about this that it's simultaneously, I think, one of the most Interesting and important things for socialists to, you know, kind of struggle through is this uh, tension between this view of progress and everything else we say about capitalism. So that's one thing. And the other is that this is one of those things about which my own understanding is in flux. Uh, And so I'll try to say something about that. So, you know, why is capitalism an advance? So in addition to the Communist Manifesto, let me just quote from, this is the very end of the piece Wage labor and capital, which they wrote for workers. And here's how that piece ends it says capital is barbarous, it drags with it workers into its grave, uh, the corpse of its slaves uh, who perish in capitalist crises, and so on. And we thus see that if capital grows rapidly, competition among the workers grows even more rapidly, and the subsistence levels decrease even more rapidly. But, and here's the last sentence of this piece, this, notwithstanding the rapid growth of capital is the most favorable condition for wage labor. right? So I'll say this again. this is the thing they leave us with at the end of a piece directed at workers, that despite everything about capitalism, the rapid growth of capital is the most favorable condition for wage labor. And, you know, it's like this is kind of a surprise ending until we remember that, yes, this is a time when wage labor is actually in England especially, uh, you know, people are uh, fleeing the, the countryside, assembling in factories, unionizing, figuring out their common interests. And so it is the favorable condition in the sense that large numbers of people are being put into conditions and being given the resources to actually develop their collective interests. And a company that is the claim that capitalism is simplifying these very complicated divisions among people into these two great camps. I mean, they actually use that term, it's these two great camps facing each other. And so in that sense, uh, it is, and an advance. Here's something else to to think about. You know, uh, in previous episodes, I was drawing on this theme of like just thinking about our bodies. Up until 1800, life expectancy across the world, taken as a whole, was under 30 years, 3-0. Today, it's over 70. Also, around 800, there were 600 million people on the planet. And today there's more than 6 billion, 10 times more. So I'm being very simplistic here, but this is capitalism. So if you think having lots of people around is a good thing, and I do, I mean, you know, we're not sort of Malthusians here. Let's be frank about this. The reason the planet can now support so many people is that a tiny fraction of the U.S. population engaged in agriculture generates enough food to supply 2,000 calories in principle to every person on the planet. This is absolutely phenomenal. It is unprecedented. And basically, it should be put on the balance sheet of capital as a massive advance in human history. So to this extent, I think that i absolutely right. I also, I will say, coming from India, you know, I grew up uh, watching sort of uh, uh, large numbers of people being condemned to live as uh, or to work as maids for other people who had money. And today, a common complaint is you can't find people to do that work anymore. Uh, You know, maids come and go, they leave without uh, giving you warning, they want to educate their kids and so on. Well, that is the development of capitalism in in India. So I I have actually watched it happen. It's freed in that sense, large numbers of people, also from the shackles of caste in the countryside. It's brought them into the, the countryside. So I think, yes, again, it's a question of time and place. You could argue that for large sections of the U.S. geographically in the South, for example, possibly, and I'm saying this a little, maybe deliberately to be a little polemical about this, that one issue with sections of the U.S. might be insufficient capitalism. So the problem may not be too much, but rather not enough, the parts of the country may not have escaped sufficiently from you know, Jim Crow and sharecropping and so on, we might actually need a greater sort of development of capitalism in some parts of, uh, of the US. So time and place uh, is, is important here. Now, I was very happy to sort of say this without qualification a few years ago. So now I'll add why, in addition to all the other things we've said about capitalism, you know, being bad for us, You know, climate change now is a species level threat that I think Marx and Engels actually anticipate. There are other, uh, you know, in the German ideology, you find some references and so on. But, you know, why should we expect people in the 1800s to sort of figure this all out? I don't know that people foresaw that the entire species could be simultaneously, first of all, so successful, billion, billion, people, and create the conditions for, quote unquote, its own destruction not the species as a whole, but as David was pointing out, this is capitalist competition and so on. But it is the same system that is freeing us from the the starvation and hurtling us towards uh, this cliff. And then here's another qualification to this. It's 7 billion human beings And now as we're becoming increasingly conscious of the consequences to other species on the planet, and again, this is not a Malthusian thing that just the numbers of people are a problem, it's not that, but having this enormous success for the human species in terms of numbers and longevity, the habitat for other species has imploded dramatically. And so quite apart from the issue of climate change, the question is, what do we owe the other inhabitants, uh, both plants and animals. Again, time and place.
0: You threw out the, uh, the term Malthusian a couple of times. You know, Malthusian, the idea that people think that the issue is too much consumption or too many people overcrowding.
1: Well, when capitalism becomes advanced, the population growth does slow down. So it seems to have its own and in fact heads toward uh, toward no more population growth. So it's not clear that In the long run, capitalism will keep uh, increasing the population. But I, I think it's important to qualify the deserved praise that Marx and Engels heaped upon capitalism for bringing human progress. And there are two important qualifications. First, while capitalism has produced technological advances with potential benefit for humanity, at the same time, it always tends to limit the actual benefit that results because the profit motive leads to patents and control of technologies so that life-saving drugs become extremely expensive, become unaffordable for many people. There are many areas in which capitalism restricts the benefit from new technologies. Perhaps more important is that while capitalist enterprises are good at making minor changes in production methods that make them more efficient. They're not good at major innovations because the pursuit of a major new thing is too risky to make sense in the profit and risk calculations of capitalists. And all studies of the origin of the major life-changing uh, innovations, you know, the internet, uh, cell phones, etc all of those things, none of them came from profit-oriented Enterprises. They come instead from governments, from universities, from nonprofit institutions, and from odd independent inventors who are driven less by the pursuit of wealth than by the obsession with solving a problem and coming up with something new. And there's every reason to believe that a future democratic socialism will be much more effective than capitalism's record at advancing human productive power in ways that will genuinely benefit human beings.
0: At one point in the text, Marx and Engels write, but not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield those weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. Where within this capitalist reality do we see the hope for a different future?
1: I think Marx and Engels were right that it is the central victims of capitalism, those who are exploited to produce the growing flow of wealth that have the power and the potential to overcome this system. But capitalism oppresses other groups in society as well. It, it oppresses people of color. It oppresses women. The danger to the environment has activated many young people who are greatly concerned about uh, the future. So there are, I think, an alliance of the working class, a working class movement with the other groups uh, in the population that are harmed by the way capitalism works, particularly in this era that has the potential to build an alternative to capitalism in the future. They have the power, the motivation, And I think that is the hope for the future.
2: So I I think they're right that the bourgeoisie is calling into existence its mortal enemy. At the same time, that mortal enemy has to act self-consciously in its own interest. That is, there's nothing automatic about this. Uh, We need the conscious agents. And, you know, this is where organizers and you know socialists come in is uh, it doesn't happen automatically. We also know this from the side of the bourgeoisie. They don't win sort of just because they're more productive. Uh, they won historically through wars and great political struggles. And because they had people who laid out the aims and organized other members of their class effectively.
0: All right. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. We're going to end here. We do actually have also curriculum materials for a session on why the working class, which will cover some of those things more. The final episode of this series, which is going to cover racism and capitalism, and we'll be looking at a small excerpt from Ianga Yamada Taylor's book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. I want to thank Sanjeev Gupta and David Kotz for speaking with us in this series, as well as our producer, Elton LK, and our co-producer, Jeff Barois, and Casey Sticker, our sound engineers. Really appreciate you all. I'm Stefanat here, and I was your host. It was a pleasure to be here. Until next time.